The scripture this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees into the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is God's word. There are times in your life when this much is true, that the weird waiting place can happen to you. Waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for Friday night. Waiting for COVID to go away, waiting for a normal day. Waiting for a year, maybe more, for things to get back to what they were before. Everyone is just waiting. But when our long waiting isn't done with such ease, we remember the waiting of centuries. For long ago, others were waiting in line for the one who would come in the fullness of time. fullness of time, waiting as hard as we were reminded last week. Friends, I ask this question, has the anticipation, excitement, <clears throat> and the hope of waiting, when we think about waiting for something good, uh, has that waned and have left you annoyed, frustrated, and angry, and at worst, anxious, fearful, and defeated? And today, I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote, as he inspired by God himself, that the fullness of time has come and that Jesus has arrived. Jesus has come. The waiting is no more. That's the truth of Scripture if we leave here as we leave here today. But that sometimes feels like it's a light year away, a light year away from some of the waiting we may feel in our hearts today the waiting that we've carried into this room, the waiting we have for healing, uh, whether it be physical or emotional or even spiritual, the waiting we have for reconciliation, maybe with an estranged family member or a friend that has been lost, or waiting even for the right person to come along, waiting for a promise that's barely being held together. You can't even remember uh, what the promise was. We've all been there. Right? We all know what that feels like, yet it still feels like we're the only one in the room that experiences it. 
We know it's a universal feeling, but it still feels so isolating when we're caught up in the waiting and the waiting and the waiting. For the Christian worldview, when we look at it from the eyes of Scripture and God, uh, we can be confident in what Jesus did, and we can be confident in what he will do. But there's this space called the now. And what do we do with that space between where it feels like our awaiting seems uncertain? And well, that's exactly what our Advent series is, learning to wait, learning to wait in the now, not just to build character or patience, uh, while those things are important, but learning to live in the tension of the now and the not yet, what we have certain for, yet we are still longing to receive. Pastor Tim is going to continue in our series next week as he impacts more of what it means to wait and long for Christ to return again and make things right. But today we're going to dive deeper into looking back, looking back at the waiting that creation and history itself waited for in Jesus' arrival and its implication. Last week he received a, a Lego piece. It's part of our uh, Avid series that we want to give you things that remind you uh, these elements that remind you of what Jesus did, that those moments where uh, Christ is our foundation, who he is. Today you received a life saver, saver, savior. Uh, you're supposed to hold on to these things. So through the week, you can be reminded of who Jesus is. If you already ate it, just you know, take it back out, hold it in your hand, <laughs> put it in your pocket. <clears throat> we have limited supply. No, you can grab another one on your way out. But it's part of our Christmas in a box. If you're a family or you have grandchildren, you grab the box. As you go through the Advent series, these are part of it. Uh, but they're these elements, these little reminders of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in our text today. He's trying to remind the Galatian churches. Uh, he's trying to remind them these little elements of what, uh, what it meant for Jesus to come. He's to remind them that the wait is over. And the old way, the, the, the paradigm of the old way uh, in which people live their lives have shifted into a life uh, if you follow Jesus. And he walks through three reminders in our text. First is that uh, the past is in the past. Second is that the promise is here. And third is that your position is secure. The past is in the past. The promise is here. And your position is secure. So first, the past is in the past. <clears throat> first one through three. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. There's a lot there. But Paul is trying to convey to the early Christians is what a new relationship with God looked like. And he's trying to show that by saying the old way in which they were living life and have a standing before God, it, it's deficient now. The fullness of the revelation has come. It's deficient to look at the old way in which people live their lives. And he invokes uh, a concept that was very, uh, very common in the secular Roman world. See, family life in the first century was very different than family li life now. You know, in in our culture, we saw our family up there leading us in our Advent reading, and children are uh, precious, and they're part of us, and they worship with us, and rightfully so. But in the Roman world, children were seen nothing more than a commodity. 
That's all they were. They were commodities that were used in a way that could carry on the family lineage and reputation and wealth and power. They weren't seen as something that treasured. There was no uh, family time. There was no idea of all of us hugging and kissing. It was just a way of a commodity in which I could transfer my lineage and reputation. And it was a common practice for wealthy Roman families. And what they would do as they had a male son in that culture, uh, they would give them uh, custody over to a guardian or trustee. They were way too busy to deal with this child during his growing up phase. Um, and they would just hand him over to a guardian or a trustee. And until the time that they would finally come of age, uh, that they really didn't have any rights or authority of the family, no matter how powerful they were. It didn't mean that eventually they wouldn't step into it, but it was only until the set appointed time. And Paul, is that, Paul says that we, the God's people of that time, are like in slavery on the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And when we hear that word in English, we sort of think of these secular forces against us and how can we fight against it. And he alludes to some of that element later, but he's most likely referring back to chapter three as he's unpacking what it means to be living in this new life. And he says it this way, the idea of um, this, these forces that were at play were actually the thing they thought were helpful, which was the law, the law in the Old Testament. It was the law that was holding them as a trustee and guardian. Look at what he says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. We were held, we, the people of God, were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. It's the common theme of Galatians where Paul is trying to convey to those early Christians, don't, don't look to the past don't look to the past and the law for your righteousness. You're standing before God, but look to Jesus. See, this law was just a temporary guardianship to keep us protected as well as remind us of a better future ahead. Yet there were those in the Galatian church and all the early churches that even though they knew it, they always wanted to keep going back to the past, back to the law. See, when sometimes when the waiting for us becomes too long or uncertain, we, we want to revert back to what we know and are comfortable with. There's this common phrase in leadership. It says, when in a moment of crisis, we don't rise to the occasion, we just default back to our training. And we say, in a moment of crisis, we don't rise to the occasion as an organization, as a people, whatever, we default back to our training. We default to what we know. And in our waiting, when the pressure and tensions come, we are no different as well. In those moments of Christ, we revert back to the law. That's what Paul is trying to say to them. Those moments where it becomes unbearable to wait any longer, we revert back. We don't rise up, we revert back. And for today, the law looks different for many of us, but the roots are the same. We just think if we just try harder, if we were just more faithful, if we were just more grateful, if we were more obedient, if we were just more committed, then we can endure the waiting a little bit longer. That's the law in our hearts. That's the song that keeps entrapping us back down to old way before Jesus. It's the same temptation that the early church faced in the midst of their waiting. But the Apostle Paul, what he's trying to do is he, he's using imagery and illustrations to push us, say, don't look to the past. Look, there's a better way. And he says this, that the promise 
is here. The promise is here. See, there's this old way that we were entrapped in. But when the set time had fully come, the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. But when the time had fully come, think what Paul is trying to say here, that we know from Scripture before the foundation of the world that God sent his plan of redemption into motion, and the song of rescue is interwoven into history itself, and it reaches this crescendo in Jesus' coming. So we get a taste of it early on in Genesis 3.15. We know, uh, we know if we study the scriptures that in those first few chapters, everything's good, but we know that man and woman betray God. But even in those early moments, God promises them, while the enemy may strike the heel, the seed of the woman, speaking of Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent. And what this means is that while sin and darkness may have marred us, marred our relationship with God, marred the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at others and the world itself, that one day there will be a redeemer that will come and set all things right. He will crush the head of the serpent. And throughout human history, what God is trying to convey to his people is keep your eye on that promise. Keep your eyes focused on the promise that one day a redeemer will come. Don't take your eyes off that promise. No matter the waiting you experience in Egypt, no matter the waiting you experience through the wilderness, no matter the, the waiting you experience as you wait for king after king after king, prophet after prophet after prophet, priest after priest, the waiting you experience when you search for God in the temple and the sacrifices and the law, keep your eyes on the promise that something so much better is going to come. And the cosmic story is no different. Every revelation, every sign, every sacrifice, you can almost imagine the angels as they erupt in the arrival of Jesus. Glory to God in the highest. They're just saying all through the waiting, just wait a little bit longer. Just wait a little bit longer until he arrives. All these shadows are just glimpses of the one to come. The miracles, the signs and wonders, nothing compares to him. And in Luke 2, this eruption. And the Greek says plethos of angels, the multitude, the plethora of angels that shout glory to God in the highest. The waiting is finally over. You can feel it in creation. They've been just waiting every step of the way. And then finally, when Jesus arrived, the waiting is over. The promise is here. The waiting is over, friends. One, one of the reasons I love this church is their commitment to uh, some of the global work around the world, and especially focusing on India. Seven years ago, I had an opportunity to go to India as I was at another church, and they had a very strong partnership with India, much like Stonebridge. Uh, and then they asked me to go. And they're like, you should go see what we're doing, go visit some of our partners, uh, see what some new works we could be uh, strategizing around. So never been to India, so I'm looking at flights. They're helping me look at things. And brand new out of Detroit was this new plane, a new flight that went from Detroit to Amsterdam to Delhi, uh, a very new flight. But then I was looking, well, there's a, there's a nonstop flight. Why would I lay over? And it's cheaper uh, and it's through Air India. It's a great airline. I've flown many times, good flight. Uh, and I was like, okay, this one goes from here to nonstop to Delhi. And I was, so I signed up. I got on the plane. 14-hour flight. 14-hour flight. I get on the plane. First thing I notice is that my headphones don't, doesn't match the, 
um, the console, so I was like, okay, and uh, I can't do that. Uh, and sitting next to me is a mother and a child, and the child's like two or three years old, uh, for 13 hours of the flight, screamed in my ear. <laughs> I have kids, I have four kids, I, I'm gracious, this is something different. <laughs> that child, something's wrong with that child. <laughs> but halfway through the fight, I remember myself, uh, you know how they have the screen, if you've flown, they have the plane, and it shows you where you are, where you're going, how many hours are left. And I'm just looking at the clock, just rocking back and forth. <laughs> uh, we finally landed in Delhi, and as the wheels touched the ground, I can't tell you you know, I, I, you know, getting married, having kids, all oh, those are great. Nothing <laughs> compares to that moment I touched on. The fullness of time had come. The waiting is over. <laughs> now think of it from the grand cosmic story. That's what Jesus is trying to share with us. Paul is trying to convey to the people as they're struggling through the waiting, whatever the hardships they're feeling and feeling, Jesus, if you would just come and make things right, I keep wanting going back. And he sings, the fullness of time come. All creation had waited long enough. And then Jesus, the Son of God, has finally come. C.S. Lewis says this way, the birth of Christ is the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing the whole story has been about. When Jesus came, when Jesus showed up, when Jesus came to Bethlehem, he exceeded our expectation. He wasn't just coming as a good king or a, a good prophet or a good priest. He came to change the whole thing, that Jesus came to change everything that the whole life system, whole sacrificial system, everything was meant to be. He came to flip it upside down, and he came to give the people of God a new family. And the scripture says that Jesus came that we might receive adoption to sonship. As he flipped, up every, flipped everything down, you weren't just the people that followed me and did the things I wanted you to do. I'm adopting you into my new family. See, adoption was really not a Jewish concept. When you talked about adoption in the scriptures, you see few examples of it in the Old Testament, but it wasn't a common practice. But it was a very common and known practice in the Roman world. See, it was a way in the Roman world, adoption is a way they could preserve families. And that families with no male son, they would adopt another son and bring them into the family in a way to preserve the power and lineage. And what, what, what Jesus, what Paul is saying through the text is through Jesus that we have been adopted as a, a son in this family. And you may be thinking if you're, a woman in this where you're like, how does this apply to me? There's actually more relatable in this sense. See, previous in Galatians 3, there, there is no male, no female, but he uses the word sonship, meaning in that text, sonship, meaning you get the heir. You're the male heir. You get the full promise of the wealth and prestige and authority of all the family. He's saying all of us, no matter what of life, we have been adopted as that. In his book, Professor Francis Lyle, he says in Slave Citizen Sons, he says, the profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. All his old debts were finally instantly canceled. In effect, the adoptee started a new family as part of this new family. See, Paul says in his previous chapter, so in Christ Jesus, you are all 
children of God through faith. If you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, you are a child of God. Your debt of sin has been canceled, and you have a new life in God's family. All of us have been adopted and have the rights as a son or daughter of the Most High God. Through Christ, the promise is here. If you've placed your faith in him, he says, whatever history you may have, don't walk backwards. Step into this new light as a son or daughter of the Most High God. Whatever family life you may have, your family may want to have gotten rid of you, but you've been adopted and have the full promise of that. What does that mean? What does that mean? And what he's trying to convey is this, that your position is secure. When you ha- you're an heir in this system, your position is secure. Verse 6 and 7. Because you are his sons, God sent a spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This transition from a position of slave to one of a child, a son or a daughter in the family of God is a powerful one that can't be lost. See, Paul says that God sent his spirit into our hearts. And that spirit allows us, this deposit of the spirit in our heart, allows us to call God Abba, Father, Abba, Father. Throughout scripture, throughout the Old Testament, and even Jewish culture now, uh, God's name is spoken in such high regard, high reverence. They won't write it down. They won't even say it, right? When they even write it down, they wouldn't even write the name of God that he says he is. They would just write the consonants. They wouldn't. So when we say Yahweh, that is just a way we're trying to figure out how to say uh, the name because they actually just write Y-H-V-H. They actually don't write that. It's the Romanized. They write in Hebrew, Y-H-V-H. And we just fill in the vow, uh, vowels because we don't know because it's spoken in such high reverence who God is. And we hear story and story of the presence of God and how holy it is. And people would die if they were in his presence. They would have to be far away or have... Uh, kind of look away because of God's presence. But here we, we see this intimate language, this intimate language between a child and a father in Abba. It's the same way that Jesus addressed God in the gospel accounts. And because of the spirit in us that's been deposited, we can call to God in the same manner. The implications of Christ arriving is now we're part of his family and that we can approach God as a son or daughter, and speak to him in such intimate ways that's only in a way that a son or daughter can talk to their father. And continuing with this adoption imagery, Paul says that you're not just a child of God in his family, but through his spirit that we are an heir and a full uh, heir to the full inheritance of that family. Think of that imagery he's saying. It's like you've been adopted from this family to God's family. The spirit is your deposit. Now you have the full inheritance before you. It's a little complicated to think about when we're living in a life of lack right now. Whatever you may be, whatever value you may feel, you don't feel like a son or daughter of God. You don't feel like you have the full inheritance. When we were preparing to move to North Carolina, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the housing market is pretty crazy right now. Good for you if you're in the real estate industry. It was very difficult for us to even find a rental. I remember one place we were looking, uh, 50 applicants within the first like 24 hours of a place we were looking at. Uh, but the Lord's providence, we finally found the place and we 
we, we fought and, and clawed our way and wrote letters, and we finally uh, got a place, and they asked us to put a what? A security deposit down. We weren't living in it yet. We weren't there yet, but we had to put some financial uh, deposit down that claimed that that was ours now. They couldn't rent it to anyone else. It was ours, and we would receive it in the coming month. In our spiritual life, it's the same way, but the most important part in this is that we weren't the ones that made the deposit. It was Christ that Jesus on our behalf made the deposit of the Holy Spirit in us that we would now have the security to receive the full inheritance when all things are made right. And Tim, like I said, is going to unpack that next week. But don't lose sight of that. When Christ came, he put a deposit in our hearts. What started on his birth that ultimately always ends, the journey of the birth always ends in the journey to the cross. And on the cross, he deposited to us the Spirit of God in us as a security deposit, a deposit for the full inheritance ahead. See, for us today, before we look too far ahead, it's to remind us of the position we have as a child of God, that we are secure, that we don't have to scrounge enough of our obedience or faithfulness or purity just to be acceptable before God. But he himself gave us the deposit of the Spirit, and he secured it for us on the cross and deposited it on our behalf. Our position is secure before God because of who Jesus is, that he came and he walked the cross, the way of the cross. As we close our <clears throat> time, just revisiting this, the theme of waiting. I'll say it again, waiting is hard, as we learned last week from Pastor Kevin. Waiting is hard. Uh, MIT professor Richard Larson, who specializes in Q theory, at Harvard, Q theory, which is a fancy way of saying waiting. He's an expert in waiting. Somehow he is a professor in this. Uh, and he says, as he's done studies in psychology, I want to read you something that you can now scientifically say what is true, what we already all know to be true. He says this, no one likes waiting. This is a guy at Harvard. No one likes waiting, but the length of our wait is not as important as what we're doing while we wait. Universally, we all know waiting's hard, but he says this. What's important is the length, is not the length of our wait, but what we do when we're waiting. Know this, friends. Jesus has come and secured for you through adoption to be called a son or daughter of, in God's family, and you've received with it all outstanding benefits and promises. And that the waiting you're experiencing now, whether the valley of loneliness, anxiety, or hopelessness that you may be feeling in the waiting, and you may feel like you're the only one who's feeling those things, uh, just know that you are not outside the house of God, that where he can't hear your heartaches, cries, or fears, but he sits with you. And Jesus, remember this, that Jesus had come in the fullness of time, and through that, that we can have this intimate gaze with the Father that we can live a life not of anger, frustration, or impatience, but with hope. See, what we do in this waiting period is we have hope because of what Jesus has done, that when he finally came, we know that to be true, that he will come again, that in this waiting period, what we do is we wait with hope, what he's done and ultimately what he will do. That is learning to wait with hope in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for the glory of who you are, Lord, that in your infinite mercy and grace that you call us, that you draw us out by your sovereign will, that you choose us to be yours. 
And Lord, what a miracle that is. And God, we thank you for the faithfulness of your son who lived a life we could never live and died a death we deserve so that we could be called a son or daughter of you. And by your spirit, you lift us up to you um, to be precious in your sight so that we could call you Abba, Father. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.